0: To day one hundred and fifty-five of our journey through scripture. Today we're going to be looking at first Kings chapter twelve, verse twenty-five, through chapter fourteen, verse twenty, Psalm twenty-eight, and finally Acts chapter sixteen, verses one through fifteen. So now the kingdom of Israel has been cut in two, but it's not two equal halves. It is the tribe of Judah in the in the south. And then the others in the north. And the others will be considered um, here on out either the northern kingdom or Israel, and the south will be the southern kingdom or Judah. Now, as I mentioned yesterday, the two tribes of Simeon and Benjamin are kind of in limbo in this situation. As I mentioned, Simeon is completely surrounded by Judah. But there is some indication in the Old Testament that Simeon was dispersed throughout the other tribes. Benjamin does appear to often be kind of uh, pulled into Judah's um, uh, influence. If you look on a map, it's relatively small territory, and it's there right between um, Judah and the other northern kingdoms. So that's what's going on. And the king of the northern kingdom is going to be Jeroboam. There will be another King Jeroboam of the northern kingdom. This is Jeroboam the first, And he goes and he builds Shechem, which is apparently functioning as his capital at this time. It's kind of an understandable uh, choice as Shechem has been a religiously significant city, Uh during a lot of the events in Israel, especially as we saw in the events of Joshua. And his concern is that if the temple is in Jerusalem, people are going to have to travel to what is now, essentially, another kingdom in order to uh, worship the Lord, in order to worship Yahweh. And and. Ultimately, what he thinks that this will do is it'll it'll eventually draw the people's hearts back to allegiance to King Rehoboam, who of course is the king, uh, the son of Solomon, who is reigning in the south. And so his solution is to set up two—they're uh, often called shrines. You probably have um, more than that; probably temples, to be to be frank, um, at Dan and Bethel. So Dan being a a city in the far north, and Bethel being a city in the far south of the kingdom of Israel, the northern kingdom. And what he sets up there are golden calves, and you can't miss the allusions to uh, Leviticus, I'm sorry, Exodus 32, where Aaron makes the golden calves when the people come out of Egypt and they're at Mount Sinai, even even his words, behold your gods, O Israel, Who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. That's verbatim what Aaron said to the people. And this thing became a sin, and that's that's very significant. This becomes kind of a thorn in Israel's side. It's not as if they don't go astray in a lot of other ways, but this does seem to be a perpetual issue. for the northern kingdom for their allegiance to the lord we see this focused on in the prophet the, pro- in the prophets uh particularly hosea comes to mind denouncing uh bethel in particular and um he does a few additional th- additional things he he makes temples on high places so you probably are going to even have uh, other deities being worshipped there um he also appoints non-Levitical priests as the uh, ones who are to tend to these worship sites, and um, also makes a new holy day, appoints a new holy day, to correspond apparently with the Feast of Sukkoth, that is the Feast of Booths. So this new holiday is going to be on the 15th day of the 8th month, whereas Sukkoth was the uh, the 7th day of the, uh, or the 15th day of the 7th month. And... Uh, you can read about that in Leviticus 23, 33 through 34. So there's a bunch of non-authorized, non-commanded worship going on here, or worship that is explicitly contrary, right? The Lord has has chosen Jerusalem to make his name there and to um, officially appoint these state-sanctioned, like, no, don't go to Jerusalem, but go here instead, temples. Um, that's a that's going to be a real problem um there is some question as to what gods are exactly worshiped here um i think a strong case can be made that this is uh just as i mentioned in exodus 32 that this is deviant yahweh worship this is not straight up worship of false gods at least not at dan and bethel um because um i mean for for a couple different reasons But a a good way that you can kind of make that case is that later on there will be a king named Jehu who will institute reforms or attempt to institute reforms in Israel. Now he does so in a way that is often very questionable, but he doesn't destroy the shrines at Dan and Bethel. He sees these as compatible with what he's doing um, in instituting this kind of quasi-reform movement in Israel. So I think that that's probably what's going on there. And uh, Jeroboam then is sacrificing at Bethel, and he's standing by the altar, and an unnamed prophet comes and denounces um, him. In fact, he denounces the altar. He addresses his prophecy to the altar. O altar, altar, behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, and he shall sacrifice on you the priests of the high places who make offerings on you. And human bones shall be burned on you. So that's the worst kind, of, um, worst kind of defilement to this altar. The very priests that serve here will be killed and sacrificed on these altars. Or burned, probably not religiously sacrificed. Now notice that he names a king. Now this king is not going to reign for hundreds of years. Okay, so this is taking place. In like the late 900s BC, this is like, like he comes to power in something like 900, 931. Okay. And Josiah isn't going to be, isn't going to institute his reforms until 622. So this is like 300 years in the future. Um, But he names the king who will do this. And as we will see, Josiah is the most significant reformer king in Judah. And of course, Jeroboam doesn't like this very much, and so he stretches out his hand. You get the idea, like kind of maybe pointing at the guy, and says, "Seize him!" And as he does this, his hand dries up. And um, as these, this man of God, this prophet had said, the sign that his prophecy will come true is that the altar will be turned itself will be torn down. And as he says this, the altar itself it says. Um, uh, was torn down and the ashes poured out from the altar. And the verb there uh, torn down um, is a ver- is a passive verb could also be rendered something like fell apart or perhaps was rent. So the en- English standard version wording here kind of makes it sound like maybe people came and did it but it could just as easily be that the thing just kind of fell apart right there um, uh, on quote unquote its own right? and so jeroboam sees this and he begs that the, that he pray to the lord that his hand would be restored to him and the man of god the prophet does do that um and he inv- and jeroboam then invites him back to to dine with him to what he says give him a reward and um But he refuses. And what does he say? He says, if you give me half of your house, I will not go with you. And I will not eat bread in this place or drink water in this place because it was commanded to me by Yahweh not to do this. So he's not to have anything to do with Jeroboam or apparently anyone in the north, but just to go straight back to his home in Judah. Now, the scene kind of shifts and we're told about an old prophet who lived in Bethel. And when he heard that this guy had come, he goes and he has his sons saddle a donkey for him. And he goes and he convinces uh, the man of God from Judah to come back to his house with him and to, uh, to eat bread, to fellowship with him. But as he had told Jeroboam, the guy's like, look, the Lord told me I can't return with you. I can't eat bread. I can't drink water here. I'm supposed to go right back home. And this guy, this prophet, this old prophet from Bethel, he says to him, I also am a prophet as you are. And an angel spoke to me by the word of Yahweh, saying, bring him back into your house, that he may eat bread and drink water. But he lied to him. Now, why he wants him to come back, it's a little ambiguous. It might be that here he sees a man who is a genuine prophet um, and has some kind of longing for the days of his youth or perhaps being that this guy is a prophet who lives in Bethel and all this stuff has been going on. Here is a man who is compromised and now he sees a man who's not compromised. And there's kind of like an envy of, of who he is. Oh, that I, that I could be like you or something like that. Um, He wants to have the guy around, but what he says to him is a lie, right? It's not a word from the Lord. He just wants him to come back with him. And, uh, so the guy does this. The the prophet from Judah does go back with him. And then the old prophet who just lied to him does receive a genuine word from the Lord. And and he cries out to this prophet from Judah who had come back to him with him to his house. He says, Thus says Yahweh, because you have disobeyed the word of Yahweh and have not kept the command that Yahweh your God commanded you, but have come back and eaten bread and drunk water... Uh, In the place of which he said to you, eat no bread and drink no water, your body shall not come to the tomb of your fathers. Okay, the idea is that you should have listened to the word of God that you received. Look, was it the word of God or was it not? If it was, you need to obey it, even if someone comes to you and says he's a prophet. So this, of course, is a direct challenge to false prophecy. This will become very uh, important in the coming chapters of of 1 Kings, Um, but this becomes a very crucial time in the history of God's people, because here you have the kingdom actually up and running, and there's some serious problems, and the people really need to hear from the Lord, and they need prophets who are genuine. And so if God speaks to you through one, don't go for another prophet kind of Fishing for what you want, um, or or what you think would be would be more favorable to your own desires. No, you need to go after what you you need to follow what the Lord is speaking through His true prophets. And the the prophet himself here has a tragic fate because he himself doesn't really doesn't really follow this. And so after the his uh, the the prophet from Judah's donkey is saddled, he leaves the house. As when he does, he's on the road, and a lion meets him and kills him. And then we see that the, his body is in the road, and the lion is standing next to the donkey, and people passing by kind of see this spectacle. And it's this clear sign that something of God is going on—that this prophet has been tor—has has been put to death because of the Lord. The Lord has made this happen, and um, the idea here being, of course, that. Uh, You wouldn't find a lion just hanging out with a donkey. um, That this is, uh, why is the lion not tearing apart the donkey? That's the significance here of that. Uh, The prophet, um, the old prophet from Bethel then uh, realizes it is the man of God who disobeyed the word of Yahweh. And it's like, yeah, because you lied to him. Um, But nevertheless, he still has very high regard for him and um, brings... um, brings the man's body back to his vicinity, his residence, has him buried in his own tomb, and then expresses his desire that when he dies, he wants his bones laid alongside of this man. So all this goes down, this denouncement of Jeroboam, the crumbling of the altar, the withering of Jeroboam's hand, the restoration of Jeroboam's hand, um, and then the, the killing of the prophet who had been sent to say all of this, Um, because he was led astray by a false prophet, a man speaking false prophecy. All this happens, and then what do we see in verse 33? Jeroboam did not turn from his evil way, but keeps on appointing those priests to the high places, um, non-Levitical priests, that is, and, and this This thing became a sin to the house of Jeroboam, it says in verse 34, uh, so as to cut it off and destroy it from the face of the earth. Um, Jeroboam, we've already seen with David, right, like there is like repentance that's possible with the king, but Jeroboam just apparently doubles down on his idolatry and um, for this is in serious violation of what the Lord had told him. Then in chapter 14, we see that Abijah, Jeroboam's son, falls sick. And Jeroboam tells his wife to disguise herself and to go to the house of Ahijah. Now remember, so you've got Ahijah and Abijah in this. Abijah, it's his son who's sick. Ahijah is the prophet who had initially Um, through whom the Lord had initially given the kingdom to Jeroboam. This is the guy who met him on the road, uh, tore up his garments, gave him ten of the pieces, um, and told him what was going to happen. But he tells her to disguise herself, because he doesn't want him to know who she is, because he knows that Ahijah would have heard by now, what he had done, and so this idea that if if he doesn't know who he is, he can maybe you know she just comes in and says my son is sick, and without knowing who uh, the the mother is, he just prays for this generic kid, and the kid gets well. Like that's not how it works. You don't think the Lord sees, and but but Jeroboam has this idea that you could kind of trick. God, or at least trick the prophet into praying for him. It's this very mechanical view of religion and this very low view of God that he has here. So she attempts to do this, and by this time, Ahijah's eyes are dim, so there's nothing in him that would really um, cue him into this ruse. But the Lord speaks to him and says, "'Behold, the wife of Jeroboam is coming to you to inquire of her son, for he is sick.' Um, and thus shall you say to her. And so she comes in and as soon as she gets in, you kind of get that you get this, I think it's kind of a cool scene, right? Like he's just sitting there. she as soon as she enters it this works for zero seconds because he just goes right to her. He goes, um, come in, wife of Jeroboam, why do you pretend to be another? for I am charged with unbearable news for you. And uh, the prophecy to her is number one, um, he denounces Jeroboam for what he has done. He says, "Look, I, uh, the Lord, said, I will give you this kingdom, and I can establish. I will establish for you a house like David, if you follow my commandments, if you if you live according to my ways, and you order your kingdom rightly. But you've done evil." above all who were before you. You've made for yourself other gods, metal images, uh, provoking me to anger. You've cast me behind your back. And, and so, instead of establishing his kingdom, the Lord says that, I will bring harm upon, upon the house of Jeroboam, and will cut off from Jeroboam every male, both bond and free, in Israel And will burn up the house of jeroboam so the dynasty this dynasty will end um and and here you have and then you get uh in verse 11 this denunciation that we will hear a lot against the kings in the north Anyone belonging to Jeroboam who dies in the city, the dogs shall eat, and anyone who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat. This is an extremely undignified thing, right? Like their, their body will just be food for wild animals. And so she, he tells her, go, arise, go to your house, and when you your feet enter the city, the child shall die. So that's like the second thing. The dynasty will be cut off. This child will die Um, very reminiscent of david's um the consequences of david's sins after um after bathsheba uh and just imagine too as a mother having to go back and knowing that as soon as i get home my 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 son's gonna die and you shall bury and mourn for him and and so like all of this is terrible but then look at the end of that verse for he only of Jeroboam shall come to the grave because in him there is found something pleasing to Yahweh. In this little infant, there's something that that the, that the Lord is pleased with. And so he's going to have the most merciful um uh outcome. And of course I you know the Bible doesn't isn't like super clear about this, but I think there's enough evidence um in the scriptures to say that in that those who die in infancy do go to be with the lord Um, of course this passage isn't like talking about that specifically here uh death is presented as a mercy compared to what will happen to the house of jeroboam Uh, it's also clear here that this is going to happen through another king being appointed so there there will be other uh, kings in in israel and even here you have the exile foretold that eventually your this kingdom is going to end up being dragged off he says uh, i will strike israel as a reed is shaken in the water and root up israel out of this good land that he gave to their fathers and scatter them beyond the euphrates because they've made their asherim provoking yahweh to anger asherim here apparently like a generic word for female deities that are worshipped um I've I've talked about this before but uh often Asherah uh is uh the co- the consort of a male deity. So when they're worshipping Asherah, it doesn't mean that they've say all right, let's not worship Yahweh anymore. Instead, it's like they've given God a wife. And that's probably what's going on here. Um of course, not good, but we're not we're not talking about like full-fledged, you know, nobody worship Yahweh or, or even like we're gonna have some God above Yahweh. Um there's still is um lip service to the worship of the one true God, but of course in a way that he's totally not okay with. So this is like a severe violation of the second commandment I would say, the making of graven images. And here now you have them worshiping a false deity alongside of of the Lord as well. Um so she goes she she comes to the city of tirzah now we expect her to arrive at the city of shechem which is where the capital apparently is although the text isn't that clear about it uh but tirzah will become a uh capital of the northern kingdom but here it's just doesn't seem yet that it is there's probably simply an additional palace in this important city and she comes to the threshold of the house and the child indeed dies and they bury him then the um, summary of Jeroboam's life. Now the rest of the acts of Jeroboam, how he warred and how he reigned. Behold, they are written in the books of in the book of the chronicles of the king of Israel. This is different than the book of chronicles that we have in the Bible. Um, just like it, it's called Divrei Hayamim Lemilke Yisrael, which means the words of the days of the, uh, belonging to the kings of Israel. Uh, so it's the same name, but. Uh, it's pretty clear by the things that it's referring to here it's it's different than that but so here you have another one of these written sources that is spoken of um in the in the bible in the historical books here of the kings uh jeroboam's total reign is 22 years uh that's probably going to be from about 931 bc to 10 uh 910 uh, bc and then he sleeps with his fathers a caught the common uh term for a king dying and Nadav, his son, reigns in his place. Um, okay, let's go now to Psalm 78. Psalm 78 is a, is a pretty lengthy psalm, uh, and um, it's, I think, a good example of some of the stuff that we've been reading about, where um, one of the ways in which we, uh, which we honor God, which we give him glory, is to praise him specifically for the stuff that he has done. And not only is this honoring to God in himself and an appropriate response to his goodness in our lives, but it is also, right, it is also an act of worship because it is teaching the future generations about what God has done. So this starts with a very Deuteronomy 6 kind of flavor, right? Like you're to teach these things to your son so give your O my people to my teaching incline your ears to the word of my mouth i will open my word my mouth in a parable which here probably means something like a didactic discourse like a teaching okay um i will utter dark sayings from old i think a better translation might be enigmas right so things that are uh puzzling but and worth pondering uh, things that we have heard and known that our fathers, our fathers, have told us, we will not hide them from their, from their children, uh, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of Yahweh, the wonders he has done. Okay, and again, um, it's, it's, it's very Deuteronomy 6 sounding here. Um, he commanded our fathers to teach their children the nec- that the next generation might know them, children yet unborn. Uh, And then tell them to their children. Uh, So why? Why all this telling to children? So that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God. (laughs) Anybody who does any kind of children's ministry or any parents, this should be a psalm very dear to their heart. Um, But rather than forget God, we want them to keep his commandments that they should actually not be like their fathers. So we're teaching, so part of the lesson is not just like, is not merely all the good things god has done but all the ways and all the lessons that we have learned about why we need to follow him that it's not just inevitable that we're going to be on god's side our hearts can turn and so this is critical for people to understand um uh it begins in verse 9 actually mentioning the ephraimites now remember the ephraim is where the tribe that jeroboam is from Uh, The northern kings tend to be from the tribe of Ephraim. And uh, so this psalm is going to be coming from a period where that's kind of known that, you know, the kingdom has been split and Ephraim is the north. We also see Ephraim um, mentioned in verse 67. And there it talks about the rejection of Ephraim in favor of the house of David. So, you know, for the kind of stuff that we've been reading about today, because they're not taking into account the lessons of the past. In fact, it's going to start talking about the Exodus and the uh, wilderness generation and how they were unfaithful to the Lord and rebelled and grumbled and did all that stuff. And I might add, worshipped false gods, right? They worshipped the golden calves which is exactly what Israel is doing in what we're reading in the book of Kings. So um, uh, they did not keep his covenant. They refused to walk according to his law. They forgot his works, all the stuff that we want our children to not do. So we're going to tell them this stuff. And so what does it tell of? It tells of uh, the events surrounding the Exodus and the coming out of Egypt, the great saving act of God in the Old Testament. And in terms of... um, In terms of Psalms that speak to this, Psalm 78 is definitely the most thorough, kind of like the poetic description of the things that we read about in the historical books in Exodus. Uh, Interesting little factoid here, too. uh, In both 12 and verse 43, the location for where the wonders happen, this is the, the plagues, and several of the plagues are going to be mentioned in this Psalm, is it's given as the fields of Zoan. And it's called that. That's that's not what it, that's not what the area is called in uh, the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus makes it clear that the uh, that the stuff that's going down with the king of Egypt is happening in his capital, which is called uh, it's called Ramses, which is what uh, the way it's put in the Bible. Uh, historically, that is the city of P. Ramesses, which in the uh, not long after the Exodus was no longer used as a capital city of um, of Egypt. Um, uh, my understanding is it's because of Nile inundation. It just become, it became unmanageable and it had to be moved. Um, it, was, it was only actually the capital for a, a, a very short time. Um, and so you could kind of very specifically locate when the Exodus would have actually happened. But the interesting thing about this is here you have a psalm being written from later on in Israel's history, and it calls it that area according to the name that it would have been at the time of the writing of the psalm uh this uh the zoan being the place around where tanis is um so it's a prominent place in egypt during the right days um, of the writer of the psalm but it's just interesting that exodus uses that older name which is one of the several aspects of the the, the telling of that story that really indicate that it comes from a much earlier time, that there's a lot of genuine, genuinely old stuff in there, um, as opposed to simply being made up later during Israel's history. Like if you were going to call the area something, Psalm 78 tells you what you would call it at a point later in Israel's history. So it tells us all kinds of stuff here, right? Like that um, talks about the about how this is happening in Egypt, how he brought wonders, um, uh, how he parted the Sea of Reeds, talks about the fire um, uh, that led them to the wilderness and the cloud by day, and then the bringing rock um, from the water, the splitting of rocks in the wilderness, and yet they sinned. All the more against him, they rebelled against him. They tested him, um, all because of the food that they craved. They asked, "Can God spread a table in the wilderness? You know, we're going to sit down to eat here." Um, and um, and but <laughs> and the psalmist asks, you know, like, "Hey, he struck the rock and water gushed out. You don't think he can also give bread? Oh, yes, um, he can give bread." And uh, the, and. And in response to their grumbling, we see we're reminded of the Lord's wrath, and yet nevertheless He's good to them. He rains down manna from heaven, uh, calls it the grain of heaven, the bread of angels, food in abundance. And not only that, but He rains uh, meat on them like dust. This, of course, is a reference to the sending of quail. And as they're eating and f- and 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 filled, and the food is still in their mouth, uh, God's anger is kindled and some of them are killed. And yet, despite all of this, many of them their their attitudes, their hearts were still turned from God and they were angry with him. And um and and the little turning that they did, the the the, the moments of repentance that they had, it was simply flattery. They flat verse thirty six, they flattered him with their mouths. So like that even their turning was a lie. But God is being merciful towards them. Um He, they were not faithful to the covenant, but he being compassionate, it says atoned for their iniquity, did not destroy them, restrained his anger and did not stir up his wrath, um, remembering that they are but flesh. Then it goes back to more historic reminiscences, um, kind of back in time again, back to Egypt talks about several of the plagues, the rivers to blood, the swarms of flies, the frogs, the destroying locusts, the hail, um, and even the death of the firstborn, the 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 weeping in the tents of Ham. I remember Egypt being a descendant of of Ham, um, according to uh, the book of Genesis. Um, he led his people out, guided them in the wilderness like a flock of sheep. Uh, he led them to slave to to, to safety. Right. It's it, this is kind of like repeating, but just in different ways, focusing on different things talks about how he brought them into the land, to the mountain, which his right hand had won, probably referring to Jerusalem, driving out the nations before them, portioning for them a possession, settling the tribes in their own tents. And yet they still rebel. Uh, they turn to idols once they're in the land. Um, they They turned away and acted treacherously, it says, like their fathers did, and I like I like this image here, verse fifty-seven. They twisted like a deceitful bow. So think about it. Like that's it's a useless bow. It's twisted. So you draw it back and you fire it, but the thing, it's not sure, right? It's 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 twisted, and so the the, the arrow's not going to go where you point it. Uh, moved him to jealousy with their idols. Uh, it talks about his forsaking stuff we saw in First Samuel. The forsaking of his dwelling at Shiloh, that of course is where the tabernacle is initially set up. It says that he delivered his power to captivity. That may be a reference to the Ark of the Covenant, which you recall is taken by the Philistines at that time. That's the incident where they put it in their temple and then their god, um, it it ends up on the floor each morning and the second morning its 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 hands and its head are cut off. But the psalm does end with the Lord responding to his people's repentance, and that's really the final lesson that this psalm is intended to give here. And indeed he does, right? When Samuel leads them in repentance, God gives them victory over the Philistines. And um, and the way—it's it's very um, what we call anthropomorphic language. This is God being described in human terms in order to paint a vivid picture. And so look at the way verses 65 and 66 put it. It says, the Lord awoke as from sleep, like a strong man shouting because of wine. It's like, who's like, you know, he ha- it's like he's been sleeping, but now he's woken up. And even this kind of shocking way of describing God in his um, fierceness towards the enemies of his people um, like a strong man shouting because of wine and he put his adversaries to rout he put them to everlasting shame um the last thing you you get you again we, we circle back to this rejection of ephraim uh, but the choice of the tribe of, of judah the choosing of david mount zion which he loves he built his sanctuary um like the high heavens like the earth which he has founded forever um, notice the, the connection here between the creation and the temple. Um, and he chose David his servant, took him from the sheepfolds, um, and made him the shepherd of Jacob, his people. Um, and with upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. I think there's even something kind of messianic in this, uh, Christological in this, right? The answer to his wayward people who are, very vacillating here. It's almost like you, you want to have no confidence in them because it, when they turn, they turn back, and that's they turn back towards their sin. And so even their repentance is short lived. Um, but the the answer, the place where this psalm leaves off, is with the temple where he will dwell, and the Davidic king shepherding God's people. And as we continue to read the book of uh, the books of Kings, we will see that um, that no mere human king is going to be able to really fulfill the expectation here given to us in Psalm 78. And so we are left uh, looking to another, the one who will one day come um, to shepherd God's people. Okay, let's go now to Acts chapter 16, uh, verses 1 through 15. So we're on the second missionary journey now paul and barnabas have separated over disagreement as to whether or not to take john mark with him and uh, paul is going up through uh what we would think of as like modern day turkey going up into asia minor um he's at the cities of derb and lustra and at at lustra he um meets a young disciple named timothy who is the son of a jewish woman whose father is greek and um Timothy is a believer. He is spoken well of by the brothers. And uh, Paul is so um, taken by his faithfulness to the Lord, he wants him to accompany him on his missionary journey. And so he circumcises him. And the reason why, the text tells us, because of the Jews that were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. So here's this... uh, here is this situation, right, which is kind of interesting because they're still delivering to them the decision reached by the Jerusalem Council, which is specifically you don't have to circumcise Gentile believers. But here we have—so, so of course, this is not a salvation thing or anything like that, um, but it, there, it is a witness to the Jews thing. And although Gentiles don't need to be circumcised, of course, to be saved or anything like that, when you're doing ministry among the jewish people you need to have you need to do what you can to be winsome among them and of course that goes for any people that we are trying to reach and so you can imagine right paul goes into a city goes into a synagogue and who does he have with him a guy who's half jewish half gentile and if he's not circumcised the attitude that you know the response that you can probably expect is, well, here's a guy who has a choice. Are you going to go with your Jewish roots or are you not? And has chosen, okay, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to reject it. I'm not going to be circumcised. So Paul, going into all these synagogues, is he really going to bring a half-Jewish guy who's essentially rejected the covenant of Abraham, at least in the eyes of the Jewish people he's trying to reach? So it's a very important missionary strategy that Timothy uh, be circumcised in order to aid in Paul's ministry to the Jews first. So then they continue to go through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, and um, forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in in Asia. So what they're go- doing here is they're kind of going north of the region that is known as Asia in the, um, you know, in Roman times, um, and uh, and they're, 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 they're forbidden to speak there by the Holy Spirit. And we're not told why the Spirit tells them not to go there. Eventually, he does end up in the region of Asia. Um, we read in Acts about his time in Ephesus. Uh, but this is where a lot of the churches addressed in Revelation are going to be located. And so it may be that there are other missionaries working there and that God actually wants them to bring the gospel even further to the West, which, of course, is what happens. So they are moving by land to the west, and at this point, it's kind might be helpful to to follow along with a map. Actually, that's why one of the things that the maps in your back, the back back of your Bible are particularly helpful for some of the journeys of 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 Paul. Uh, but they end up at Troas, which is um, a, a coastal city in uh, in Asia, and they take a boat. They go by boat. To Macedonia, because Paul has a vision of someone in Macedonia coming and asking them to preach the gospel there. So they do that. They make a brief stop at Samothrace, which is an island, and then they they, um, they 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 come to land in Macedonia at the coastal city of Neapolis, and uh, they go north to Philippi. And interestingly, um, when they're in um, when they're in Troas, um, we see in verse 10 that the pronouns change, <laughs> okay? So up until then, it's he went there, they went there. It's third person. But if you look at, at verse 10, it starts to be we. We sought to go on to Macedonia. He called us to preach the gospel to them. So um, this probably indicates that Luke is joins Paul in Uh, troas luke being the writer of the gospel and he doesn't stay with paul indefinitely throughout the rest of the book but you do have these we passages in luke in in the in acts rather which probably indicate that the author whom we know to be luke um, is with paul during these times so they they come eventually to the city of philippi a leading city of the district and there they go down to a place of prayer on the sabbath and they and they see a bunch of women who had come together to pray and one in particular kind of shines and her name is lydia she's not a native to philippi she's from the city of thyatira Uh, she is a seller of purple goods and a worshiper of god and here again we have one of these passages that talks about the that speaks to the the um initiative of God in salvation it says the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul and uh, she receives Christ she is baptized as well as her household and um, she she urges them to stay with her so they are going to lodge with Lydia during their time in Philippi so Lydia is all in and she becomes a partner in Paul's ministry uh, during their time in this city All right, everyone. That's it for today. I thank you for being with me. I very much look forward to being with you tomorrow. And until then, keep reading scripture. Take care.